Good morning again, everybody. If you would stand to your feet as we read a scripture this morning, if you would open your Bibles, I know this is going to surprise some of you because we just finished Malachi, but open to Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Malachi 1, verse 1. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament, just before Matthew in the New Testament. Malachi 1.1 says this, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we bless your name and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the abundance of truth that we have learned over this past year as we've looked through Malachi. We thank you that we have been brought, to, uh, brought face to face with Christ in your word, that we might love him and know him more and understand the great salvation that we have so much better than we maybe initially did. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hang on to the truths that we have learned, to not forsake them and not forget them and not allow them to just pass through our mind and in one ear and out the other. May it transform our living. May it transform our thoughts, our feelings. May it transform our mission and all that we do, God. And may it transform our worship of you most of all, Lord, for that is the, the, the high end for which we were created, to know you and to enjoy you forever, for all eternity. And your gospel accomplishes this, Lord. It, it reconciles us, it makes us at peace with you so that we can ascend the hill of the Lord, so that we can be with you and forever enjoy you. And we thank you that you've given us your spirit who dwells in us, who helps us to be more like Christ, who creates a greater love in us for you as we read your word and are set apart from sin by it and are sanctified. Lord, we herald and proclaim that Christ is coming again. Lord Jesus, come quickly, come soon. We long to be with you. We long to see you face to face. We long to worship at your feet. Lord, we do so by faith now, but one day we will no longer need these eyes of faith, for we will behold you in person, and we look forward to that day with great delight. We know it will not come until your gospel has reached all the nations, tribes, and tongues, and languages. And so we pray to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, please be seated. The sermon is titled... God's love for Christ. God's love for Christ. And this is a message for you and for me. For those of you that ever binge watched a really good show, it's a terrible thing to come to the end of the series, right? And you know that sad feeling like you just lost someone important in your life. It's like the end of a vacation. You don't want it to end and you want more of it. You're, and you're Googling right away, is there another season coming? And you're like, no, it got pulled. And you're like, ah. It's like when you have to say goodbye to a good friend, and you may not see them for a while. It can feel like that. There are moments in my life when I remember the last day of a closing chapter in my life. I remember when I graduated college, and Jenny and I, we drove off in a U-Haul uh, to come back to California. And Springfield misery never looked so beautiful in the mirrors of a car as we left that town. That chapter was closed. I recall the last day that I worked at my church in Los Angeles, turning around and waving goodbye to the youth leaders and the teens that I served there. Another chapter closed. I recall leaving my previous job of 13 years at a car dealership, having worked a full shift that last day down to the very last minute. I spoke with my manager afterwards and resigned on the spot, because in that sort of sales job in the automotive industry, when, they want, uh, when you quit and put in your two weeks, they want you gone that very same moment. There is no putting in your two weeks in the car business, and I knew that, and they knew that. Another chapter done. There have been quite a few chapters in my life, in my wife's life, where, um, where I remember the ending very distinctly and very clearly. I knew those chapters were coming to an end, and in those moments, I told myself to look around, to take in the moment and observe my surroundings, to observe and listen to the words that were being said, to remember the scenery and the people so that I would not let those important memories eventually slip into a mental abyss and be lost forever. And so I was heightened in my awareness of what was going on in those moments. Those 
couple of those moments happened this past year, believe it or not. Uh, this past year, and if you've ever lost a pet, you know that's a sickening feeling. We lost both of our dogs to old age and sickness. Those chapters closed with sadness, but they also closed with gratitude. As my wife and I, we got to pray and thank God that we got to watch over just a small piece of his creation. A piece of his creation that he gave for our delight and our comfort and to keep our feet warm at night in these cold winter days. Happy memories, great memories, recalling being in the vet's office and having to put our dogs down. Those are sad moments, but they're, those chapters are closed. There are chapters in my life that are yet to be closed. Ending something can be bitter and it can often be sweet, but when something significant is ending, it generally leaves an indelible impression on your heart and mind. Two weeks ago, I preached and we ended Malachi, which ends the writings of the prophets and it ends the writings of the Old Testament. So it wasn't just the ending of Malachi, it was the ending of so much more. The chapter of Malachi is closed in our preaching as far as uh, at Sovereign Way Christian Church, and we may refer back to it. But before we go on to another book, which is our custom, before we go on to another book of the Bible, I want us to stop. I want us to look around at Malachi and take in the scenery, take in the thoughts one more time. And I want us to remember key points and important things that we listen to as God spoke to us. Over 15 sermons in Malachi, God spoke to us, stretching from December, actually it was October of 2021, all the way to February 2023. Going through books of the Bible can feed your soul and it can mature you in Christ. But oftentimes, the trek is so long, because some books of the Bible are pretty lengthy, that trek can be so long that you forget what you first learned at the beginning of that many months and sometimes years ago. And so I want us to do something that I've never done before with a book of the Bible, okay? I want us to recap and go through this. And if you weren't here with us when we first started Malachi, I hope that this piques your interest in the book of Malachi. Maybe you joined our church or started coming when we were halfway through this. Hopefully, these thoughts that we present to you and these ideas and notions and key truths will help you maybe to want to go back and listen to those and invest some time in the book of Malachi. It's online. And for those of you that were here, I want to recapture those Christ moments. Because in Malachi, there are so many. There are so many Christ moments that help us to love our Savior, and the Spirit of God can use those things to help shape our lives by this truth. Now, Malachi is only four chapters long. You can read it in about 12 to 15 minutes. It's not long at all, but it's packed with a fiery message that can knock us out of complacency. It's written to the southern kingdom of Israel, as we just read from that one verse. The southern kingdom of Israel at this time is called Judah which is all that remains of Israel. We, uh, when you understand the history, you will know that Judah has recently come out of 70 years of captivity and being enslaved to the Babylonians. Now they are under Persian rule, and they have been permitted for some time to go back to their homeland, to go back to Jerusalem, and they've been able to rebuild the, the foundations of the temple and rebuild the altar and rebuild the temple, and then reinstitute the priesthood and the sacrificial system. They are rebuilding their covenant life, their Mosaic covenant life with God. And that's what's going on. But it seems that they have become disillusioned because as they come out of captivity, they have no king. And if you know in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised that the kingdom of David would go on forever, that there would be no end. But they have no king here. They're disillusioned. Even more importantly, they have had, now that the temple is built, they have had no visitation from God upon this second temple, which was a whole lot smaller than the first temple that was built. There is no visitation of God. You see, when we read scripture, we see that God inhabited creation with Adam and Eve prior to the fall. It was always God's intent to live with humanity on this creation. Later, we see that when God met Moses in the wilderness, that they erected the tabernacle that God said, the tabernacle of God's presence. And it was a tent, which was a movable tent, and it was God's home with Israel, where he symbolically dwelt. It was where sacrifices were made to the Lord by the priests. But God visited that tabernacle. He visited it. Later, we see the tabernacle became a permanent building, a temple, 
We saw God's presence come down upon it in Scripture. And so God visited there. In the New Testament, we see that God is building a spiritual temple, which is the church. And on the day of Pentecost, who visited and came upon the spiritual temple? We see that it was God, the Holy Spirit, right? Here in Malachi, there is a second temple that has not been visited by God. And they've seen the things in the past, and they're wondering, why haven't they happened in the present? And so there's no king, there's no manifest presence of God. The former glory days of Israel are gone, and that seems to be a long-forgotten, closed chapter in their lives, which they know vividly because they've been told about it by their ancestors. But as Israel's habit is, in their complacency, they once again slip back into sin, into complacency regarding the law that God required them to keep, the Mosaic law. This law, this Mosaic law, this law from God that they received on Mount Sinai, it was from God. And we call this the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant. It was God's contract with them that he required them to live by because he had saved them out of Egypt and freed them. He redeemed them. He saved them. He rescued them by his mighty acts. And now that they are his people, they are obligated to live by him. Salvation then is is us being brought into uh, oneness with God as his children. And then in his kingdom, God requires a way to live that honors and glorifies him. And so that's what was going on. And in Malachi, God addresses six sinful thoughts and behaviors that they needed correcting. Six issues that they had. And this prophetic writing, again, is delivered to Judah, to Israel, what remains of Israel, through a guy, a man named Malachi, a prophet. His name means messenger. That's a very important thing to remember. Or angel. Angel means messenger. Malak in Hebrew. One and the same. Malak, Malachi, messenger, angel. That's what angels are. They're messengers. And in this message that God is giving to Israel through a messenger, Malak, Malachi, he is going to call out Israel's unchecked sin, all right? Their unchecked sin that is tearing down the glory of God, which is there, God's glory is there for our enjoyment and our delight. God desires to share himself with us for our ultimate pleasure and satisfaction, and Israel is just trashing that. And in God's severe rebuke to Israel, we learn quite a few things. Now, these are going to sort of flow in order. As And and really, I'm going through the entire book of Malachi. What I'm going to do is present a summary of the key truths, the highlights that we learned over the past year and a half. And uh, some of them will flow in order. But because uh, Malachi has a lot of themes, there are certain things that pop up in, in different chapters at different times. Okay? So I'm just going to kind of summarize these things and... um, We're going to be all over Malachi, but here we go. The first thing that we learn is that God loves his son's message. God loves his son's message. Now, if there's one thing that Malachi teaches us, it teaches us that God speaks. We just read that in verse 1, the oracle of the Lord, okay? So if God is speaking, that means it's time for us to hold our tongue and to listen to him so that we may obey him or know the things that he wants us to know. Again, Malachi's name means messenger or angel. Malachi is just a mouthpiece for who? For God, for Yahweh. It's God's message, not Malachi's. Later in Malachi 2, now keep this message theme in your head. We see that the priests of the Old Covenant, the priests over Israel, they are called messengers as well. And so this theme comes up again. They were supposed to properly be teaching God's word. They're supposed to be setting proper examples for Israel to follow, but they have utterly failed. These messengers have laid a big goose egg. Okay, So Malachi, the messenger, is there to speak on behalf of God to rebuke the failed messengers, the priests. Later in Malachi 3 and 4, we see this theme come up again. And God says... Behold, I'm going to send a messenger, my messenger. There's another messenger that's prophesied. And this messenger is going to prepare the way for another messenger, which is called the messenger of the covenant or the angel of the covenant. So Malachi, Malak again in Hebrew, is speaking about another Malak who will prepare the way for the Malak of the covenant. If you're not getting the drift that God has something to say in this prophetic book, hopefully this helps. 
God has a message. If you're, if, you're any, if you're doubtful that God wants to communicate to us here and now, this sets the record straight. So there's three messengers who are all speaking for God in one sense. One is speaking for God. Two more are coming. The second messenger prepares the way again for this third messenger, which is called the messenger of the covenant. And then we learn that this third messenger, this angel of the covenant, this messenger of the covenant, we actually learn that it's God himself. God is going to come and talk. God is the messenger of the old covenant, but he's also the messenger of the new covenant. And we initially learned that Malachi, when we went through this, we learned that Malachi was speaking of John the Baptist, who will prepare the way for who? Jesus. That's what Malachi is talking about. Okay, And Jesus would come and visit. In Malachi, we learned that God is going to come and visit the temple. What they've been waiting for, what they've been desiring, the one whom you desire, you're longing for God to come. And God says, I'm coming. I'm the messenger of the covenant. And so Jesus, what does he do in his visit? He visits the temple, does he not? They got the visitation from God, but not in a way that they expected. They expected smoke and fire and everything that they'd experienced before. They didn't anticipate God coming in flesh to dwell among them, and they rejected Christ. Okay, So Jesus Christ, the messenger of the old covenant that they are violating, he's the one that issued it. He's going to complete it and fulfill it and obey it, and do everything that it required that Israel did not do. And then it's going to be shut. It's going to be closed, the old covenant. Then he's going to bring in the new covenant, which we are now in. And Jesus is going to have a lot to say. And that's why we have New Testament writings. In fact, he will pass on 27 books to us that we call the New Testament, which consists of Jesus' teaching, his law, and what he wants And what he wanted us to know, he gave through his messengers, which are his apostles. So God loves his son's message. Secondly, we see that God loves his son's people. God loves his son's people. In Malachi 1-2, God tells Israel that he loves them and they deny it. To refute their sinful thinking, God reminds them that he chose Jacob over Esau. You remember those two twins, right? The hairy one, right? And then the sneaky one. Right? The one came out grabbing the other's heel. If there's a Jacob in here, you heel grabber. Where are you? Okay. There's nobody named Esau in there, right? They were twin brothers. Esau was the first. And God decreed that the older brother would serve who? The younger. If you recall that. Jacob's name was eventually changed to anybody know? Israel, yes. And that's where the nation of Israel comes from. His descendants. Esau's descendants were the Edomites. And God judged the Edomites with such severity that they are no more. They are no more. They became a desolate wasteland, we learned. If they tried to rebuild, God would tear them down again. But that wasn't the case with Israel, was it? They had sinned, and though God punished them, he reestablished them and built them back up. And though they sinned and God tore them down, God allowed them to rebuild And though they sinned again, God punished them and disciplined them, and then God allowed them to be restored as they cried out to God for salvation and returned to covenant. God was faithful to his word, faithful to his glory, faithful to the promises that he made to Israel, which was to bless them whenever they repented, and he would bless their land. And when they sinned, he would bring punishment and uh, and, and, um, awful things towards their land and cause it to not multiply But when they returned again, they would be restored. And God's intent with this, God's intent with this, we learned, was to make sure that the name of God was great beyond the borders of Israel. God desires that his glory be known globally, not just within Israel. The nations will say how great God is because of his love for Israel. And then when you venture into the New Testament, let's cross over there for a minute, you see that the book of Romans, in the book of Romans, that the church... The church, which is made of Jews and non-Jews, they are those who confess Jesus as Lord, who was crucified, buried, and risen again. And it's these people that are called chosen, right? Because God is talking about Israel being chosen over Jacob. You were shown special love and affection in a way. How can you say that I don't love you, Israel? And then we see in the New Testament that we are the chosen people, like Jacob or Israel. God has chosen to set his affection on us and to save us while the world that rejects and hates Christ 
will be damned forever like Edom. Eventually, the world will be brought down, never more to rebuild. God will make them a a desolate wasteland, while we will have our lives restored and rebuilt in a new heaven on earth, a new creation. And God chose us like he chose Israel. And God's love is on display for the people of Jesus. And we eventually become the fulfillment of what Malachi said that Israel would say. Malachi told him, you will say one day, Israel, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. And are we beyond Israel right now? Yes. And Israel can say, wow, there are people that know God. Even though they have not returned to God, they will one day, God willing, according to his word, return to him, and they will recognize God's greatness in Jesus throughout the world. Great is, great is the one who has saved us. He saved people from all nations. And so God's love for his glory, God's love for his son's people ensures that his name will be great across the world. We see thirdly in Malachi that God loves his son's glory. He loves his son's message. He loves his son's people. That's us. He loves his son's glory. Israel had gotten to the point in Malachi where they were despising the name and the nature of God. They were offering polluted diseases and stolen sacrifices to the Lord. You see, God is worthy of our perfection. God is worthy of our perfection. God is worthy of us rightly representing him in this world perfectly. That is the very purpose for which we were all created and God created mankind, to display his likeness and his image, which includes the likeness of the Son of God. The Son of God we are called to reflect his glory. And it is through him that the world was created. You see, God is worthy of perfection. You have to understand, though, that ever since the fall, ever since Adam sinned and Eve sinned, none of us can bring perfection to God, can we? That is our proper worship, 100% perfection. And none of us can do that. In the Old Covenant, since Israel could not bring themselves in perfection to God, they had to bring an animal substitute in their place. And this animal was required to be perfect as a perfect symbol of what God was worthy of, but they themselves could not bring in themselves. Does that make sense? I can't come to you, God, if I'm an Israelite. In perfection, here's something of perfection that will stand in my place, representing what I'm supposed to do but have miserably failed. Now, not only did this animal stand in their place as a perfect substitute of perfection, but that animal was supposed to die in their place as another substitute for their sin. Whoever sins is worthy of judgment and damnation and death before God. And so that they would not have to die before God, this perfect sacrifice standing in their place would then die in their place as a substitute. So a double substitution, one of perfection and one of death. And so that's what we see was going on. They despise the name of God. They hate the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, by saying, God, this is what you're worth. This diseased animal with three legs, this blind animal, this, this, this crippled animal, this stolen animal. God, here's what I think of you. And that's what our lives represent. Our sinful lives Say what we think of God. Can you hear that in Malachi? And then we try to say, God, just accept me as I am. It doesn't work like that. You need a substitute to stand before you and God and do what you're supposed to do and what I'm supposed to do. And when we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus is that substitute. And who was our death? Jesus as well. And that's why God despised their offerings because it wrongly pictured their love for him, but it also wrongly ruined, uh, it ruined, I should say, the glory of what Christ was coming to do. You tracking? And so what was Israel supposed to do? They were supposed to fix their sacrifices. They were supposed to bring their best to God. Now, a lot of people take that passage of scripture and they think, well, that means I got to bring my best to God. I got to go looking uh, my best at church and I got to be on my best behavior and I got to try harder and I got to worship my best. That's not what that passage is telling us. They had to correct their offerings because they were supposed to bring something perfect before them. And the way that we apply that passage is not to bring an animal before the Lord or to correct our behavior. It is to take Jesus Christ and know that he stands between us and God. Lord, I cannot bring you myself. All I have is Christ. All I have is Christ. 
May he be my perfection and righteousness. May he be my substitute death so that I can stand before you, God, so that you can get what you rightly deserve. Lord, here is Jesus. I behold him by faith. He is what you are worthy of. And that's how we worship the Lord properly. That's why we pray in the name of Jesus. That's why we take communion in light of Jesus. That's why we preach Christ-centered sermons and songs that point us to Jesus. Because what we're doing is we're holding up Jesus before God, saying, Lord, this is the only reason I can talk to you right now, because of the perfect sacrifice and the perfect death and the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's how we apply that passage. Or else we need to go out and just try to be better humans, and that's not the point of Malachi. The point of Malachi is to show us Christ. Amen? That's why Christian services must always be Christ-centered, with him front and center. He's the only reason we can worship. Fourthly, we see in Malachi that God loves his son's name. God loves his son's name. If Israel's polluted offerings showed that they hated God, like a husband giving his wife a bag of trash for a gift, oh, honey, what do you think of me? Do you hate me? Why would you give me this? That's what they're giving to God. If those offerings showed that they hated God, then surely God's Constant declaration of his name through Malachi shows that God loves his very own name. They despise God's name. God loves his name. How do we know? Because he proclaims it constantly through Malachi. Malachi, I, I forgot the count. It's like 54 or 56 verses. That's it. Okay? But the name, of the, the name, the Lord of hosts, is used 24 times throughout Malachi. Just that name alone. Just that name alone, the Lord of hosts. It could be translated God of angelic armies. Now, Yahweh is the proper name of God. He is the Lord of heavenly armies. Why would God present himself in such light over 24 times in such a short writing? Why would God herald his name so much? It's because Israel hates the name of God and they hate God at this time. So God is getting his name out there. He's declaring it in light of the horrific way that Israel has treated him with contempt. How dare they treat the commander of the Lord, uh, the Lord of armies, the commander-in-chief of the cosmos. How dare they treat him with contempt? And so the Lord is issuing his name. There's nothing that God cares about more than himself. Now that sounds egotistic, but it's not. Because God's God is who? God. God's God is not you. He does not love you or me above himself. He loves himself more than anything. God is not an idol worshiper. He is not a pleaser of man. He is a lover of himself. And the Father loves the Son and the Spirit. The Son loves the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit loves the Father and the Son. And they are in unity. And they love each other more than anything. There is no higher good than God. He is perfection. He is the most lovable thing in the universe. There is no greater beauty than God, no higher pleasure than God. And so by him declaring his name over and over again, he is fighting for his namesake, fighting for his glory so that Israel would would find their highest joy in him because that's only where anyone's highest joy can be found. And God is presenting himself by saying, I am the Lord of hosts, the God of angel armies. He is presenting himself as a divine warrior. I am the commander of an army. Hear that. The Lord of hosts. We do not dare disrespect and mistreat our God and offer him anything other than Christ and our servitude to him in love for what he has done for us. He's coming then to fix the problem He's coming as a divine warrior, a fighter, to fix the problem, to rescue people, and to judge those who want to remain in rebellion against him. The father loves his son's name. And we see in Malachi, and uh, in Philippians tells us exactly something special about the name of Jesus. That God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name above all names. What is that name? Yahweh. It is Lord. There is no name above that name. It is God's name, and that is the name given to Jesus. God loves his son's name. He fights for it. Fifthly, we see that God loves his son's faithfulness. God loves his son's faithfulness. In Malachi, Jesus is referred to as the messenger of the covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant is a contract to live by and to adhere to. God adhered to the Mosaic covenant, and Israel did not. In the new covenant, we are promised that God will adhere to it and that he will give us a spirit so that we do not break contract with God. Now, 
Because there's a covenant and because Jesus is the messenger of the covenant, this means that Jesus is faithful to keeping contracts. He does not break his word. God loves his son's faithfulness. And we are called to emulate that faithfulness. Now, there are two types of faithfulness that I'm going to refer to, okay? One is trust and one is devotion. Trust and devotion. There are two different kinds of faithfulness. To have faith in God is to trust him. God says, I'm going to do this. I say, I believe you, Lord. I trust you. And then God does it. To be devoted to God is to be faithful in action, in thought, in word, in deed. The Israelites had to be a faithful people in that, number one, they had to trust God, and they did. They trusted him to save them from the Egyptians. But they also had to be a faithful people, which comes after the faith in God. They trust God, God saves, and then they have to live in faithfulness. But God loves his son's faithfulness. God loves his son's faithfulness, okay? But remember, faith follows uh, faithfulness follows faith, okay? Devotion follows trust. Now, part of the covenant, part of the contract that God made with Israel, it included blessings and it included curses. If they were devoted or faithful to God, then God would be faithful to bless them and to not curse them. And so they're both keeping their parts of the bargain. If they were faithless to God, undevoted to God, and worshiped other gods and broke covenant with each other, then God would cause their harvest to fail. But God was still being faithful, was he not? Doing what he said he would do. And sometimes he would send locusts or worms or hailstorms. Uh, worm storms? What did I say? Locusts, <laughs> hailstorms, all right, or worms. That would be amazing to see a worm storm, okay? But when they repented of their sin and they returned back to covenant devotion, the curses and the sanctions would be lifted and their land would be healed and they would begin to prosper. Now, this was not meant to teach us, please understand, because people have abused this passage. This was not meant to teach us that if we obey God, we're going to get rich and prosper. That was part of the old covenant. We are not Israel under the old covenant. That was meant to show them that they were in right relationship with God. Okay, I, I, I had a pastor one time teach us that if you honor God and obey him, that your tires will not go bald as fast as they should go and your washer and dryer won't break on you. Well, you know what? I, I've, I've had to uh, replace my tires many times, and we may be having to look at another dryer soon or a washer, right? That, that's not what that passage teaches us. It's meant to teach us that God is a saving God that requires devotion for the salvation that he gives. And this devotion, it requires that we live according to the covenant or contract that God made. The problem with the old covenant is that God for, or Israel forsook God over and over and over and over again, and they suffered his judgment, and it shows us that being outside of covenant with God, breaking covenant with God results in damnation, results in judgment, okay? But being with God in proper covenant results in eternal bliss. And this is what we learn in Scripture, in the New, in the new Covenant, that if you are not in proper covenant contract relationship with Christ by believing in His death and resurrection, if you are outside of that covenant, nothing but curses will be upon you as the Lord returns to judge and to damn people in the lake of fire forever. But if you are in proper covenant with God, having believed that he saved you, and now living in that covenant, obeying God out of love and devotion for what he has done for you, and you stay there, then you will inherit the new heaven that's coming down on the new earth, and you will forever be blessed by God. But what if we break covenant like Israel did? Well, that's where the new covenant is different. Scripture promises, and God promises in the Old Testament, that he's going to give us a new spirit. And he's going to put his spirit within us and write his covenant, his law on our hearts so that we do not forsake him. And so God fixes the problem with the old covenant and that Israel was constantly disobedient. He fixes it so the new covenant, there's no more issue with that. And that's why true Christians never ultimately fall away from the Lord. And that's why we would say that those who do fall away from the Lord and defect and deconstruct their faith and run away from God... How is it possible that they broke God if God promised that they can't break covenant with God? Right? How is it possible that they broke covenant? Well, then we would say they were, they were weeds. They were goats. They were false believers. They were phonies. Okay? But God loves his son's faithfulness. The Lord is faithful to do everything that he has called himself to do in covenant. And aren't we glad that his grace saves us when we trust him? When you trust Christ, 
You put your faith in him, he promises whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And he doesn't trick you. Oh, I was just kidding. No, he is faithful. We also see in scripture that God loves his son's mediation. God loves his son's mediation. A mediator is a go-between. We learn this in Malachi. It is a go-between, a person that stands between two parties. In the old covenant, the priests were the mediators between God and Israel. They spoke God's word to the people, and then they represented the people back to God through the sacrifices that the people were supposed to bring to God. Standing between them, right, or uh, standing between God and Israel. That's what the priests did. The problem with these mediators was that they were sinners too. They needed to present sacrifices as well. And the other problem was they died over and over again. They had to be replaced throughout the centuries. These priests, though, when you understand Scripture in the New Testament, they were merely placeholders, shadows, types of the ultimate priest, the ultimate priest who would come to be the once and for all mediator. That great high priest was none other than Jesus Christ himself, the God-man who bridges the great divide between God and man. This mediation was accomplished not through a goat or a bull sacrifice like they did in the Old Testament. This mediation was accomplished through his sacrifice, through his perfect life, through his death, and through his resurrection. And according to Malachi, the priests in Israel were to, by their work, bring reconciliation. That they were to bring life and peace. They were to bring life and peace through their mediatorial work, which eventually gave way to Christ, who is the once and for all mediator, the God-man. And how does he bring reconciliation? Through his perfect death, life, and resurrection. Now, one thing we have to understand is that God is capable of living without us. For all eternity past, when there was no time, God dwelt perfectly content without us. God will not die if we are not a part of his life. So the point in reconciliation is, is, is not, it is part to bring us to God, okay? But reconciliation brings something greater for God's glory, okay? It is to remove sin from our lives so that we can be with him, yes, so that we can enjoy him forever. Why? Because we will then be perfect image bearers of God. If God cares about his glory more than anything, then we see that the very reason that God made us was to be image bearers, to be glory bearers, likeness reflections, so that when God looks at us, he sees the reflection of himself and says, man, that's beautiful. And what does sin do? It ruins that, and it brings us to a place where God despises us and hates us because we do not reflect his glory, and he brings judgment. And in his love, though, for humanity, because he he can have both. He says, I'm going to restore a remnant. I'm going to restore a portion of humanity and fix those cracked images so that they will rightly reflect my glory. Thus, they will be reconciled to me and enjoy the glory that I share with them. That is what God does. And so he loves his son's mediatorial work because that's what it accomplishes. God, it accomplishes the restoration of God's glory in us for his pleasure. With Christ as our great high priest, We are now a royal priesthood, and we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. We are called to be mediators on Christ's behalf, pleading with people to be reconciled to God. So while he is the great high priest, we are sub-priests, if you will, proclaiming his name, calling people to be reconciled. We see another thing, another highlight in Malachi, that God loves his son's union. God loves his son's union. You see, the father and the son, as I already mentioned, are all in unity. In essence, they are one, but in person, they are three, so that there is no contradiction. Their substance is one, their persons are three. As three persons of one substance, they are in complete agreement in all things. They never act independent of each other. Their wills and desires are all the same, and they love each other immensely. There's never been a time when the God was fractured in an ultimate sense, not even, was, not even when Christ was forsaken on the cross by the Father. And they love each other immensely. God loves union. He loves communion. He loves community. And and he is the epitome of community. He is the ultimate community. 
Fellowship is the word that we commonly use to express union and intimacy with each other. Fellowship is not something you do. It is a state of being. You are in fellowship, in communion, in union. As such, in the Old Testament, God required Israel to live in community or covenant union with each other. Okay? And that expresses, as they're in union with God, they're in union with each other. Okay? Each in covenant with God, therefore each in covenant or union with each other. And so to violate covenant with God, we learned in Malachi, if you broke covenant with God, that was to break covenant with each other, their brothers and sisters, fellow Israelites. And to break fellowship with other Israelites was to break covenant and fellowship and union with God because they're all in union together. And what we see in Israel is that they had sinned grievously. They had broken covenant with God by their sinful marriages and broken covenants with their spouses because marriage is a covenant. It is a contract to love each other for better, for worse, and sickness and health to death do you part. And you agree to that, and you sign your name, and there are witnesses, and then a record of it is held by the state to say, this is what you agree to, and this is what you must do before God and before man. Marriage is a contract, first and foremost, and always. Don't know if you understand how serious that is. And many people breach their marriage contracts for silly reasons, other than the few exceptions that God permits it, but does not command it. And in Israel, you had men, you had priests leaving their wives and marrying pagan women, unbelievers of other nations. These were treacherous acts. And God told them just how much he hated divorce. And we took a deeper look at marriage. And we saw that God created it in Genesis. And he created male and female. And in marriage, he created a mystical union, which is then accompanied by a physical union in that they have kids together, procreation. And we took note of the seriousness of marriage and how we dare not take our marital contracts or covenants lightly. They are solemn oaths and solemn contracts before God meant to display a greater unity. They are not an end to themselves because when, when does our marriage end? According to scripture, when should it end? Till, till death, at death do you part, right? What God has joined together, let not man separate. And how does God separate? By death. That's when you fulfilled your contract to the very end. We see that all throughout Scripture. And as we travel to the New Testament, the Apostle Paul tells us something about marriage, that it was a mystery, that it was designed to point to an eternal union of Christ and his church. The bride of Christ, the groom, is Christ. Therefore, because because of Christ's eternal union and covenant with the church, therefore, husbands, you ought to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And church, you ought to adore your husband and love him as the church uh, wives. Um, sorry, let me clarify that again. Husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And wives, you are to love your husband as the church is to adore her Savior who gave himself up for her. You each have responsibilities. And none of those responsibilities call you to force the other person to do what they are required to do by God. They're individually obligated by God to do that. Husbands, you do what God tells you to do. Wives, you do what God tells you to do. Because why? It pictures the gospel. And that's why we guard marriage. That's why we believe it should only be between a man and a woman, because that's how scripture portrays marriage and ultimately points to the union of Christ and the church, which he calls a she. Okay? So we're not haters of others who are homosexual. We are not despisers of others we love god more than anything and we want them to know the gospel message and therefore we do not pollute the gospel pictures that god gives us correct that's what we do and that's why we honor marriage that's why we honor marriage but we learn to break covenant with god is to break covenant with his family therefore if we do not take church seriously we do not take the lord seriously let me say that again If you do not take the church seriously, because who is the church? It is the people that the Lord is in covenant with. It is not a building. If you do not take seriously the people of God, you do not take God seriously. No different than in Israel when they did not take each other's relationship seriously. And God said, therefore, you have have violated covenant with me. We are in a different covenant. But we show our love for God partially in the way that we show our love for his family. You think Jesus is pleased with people who spit on his wife? 
Husbands, how would you treat someone who held your wife in contempt and abused her and hurt her? Would you not become a warrior? Do you think Jesus is coming back to deal lightly with those who despise his church? He will come in a ferocious vengeance that this world has never seen. And he will bring about vengeance on those who mistreat his bride. Let us not be found in that camp. God loves the unity that he has with his son. The son loves his church. He loves his church. And while he loves himself supremely, he loves his church. He loves his people. We see another key point in Malachi, that God loves his son's holiness. God loves his son's holiness. Israel believed that God delighted in evildoers. Can you believe that? They, they said, God, you're cool with people doing wickedness and evil things because they go unpunished. And that means you're either sleeping on the job or you just you delight in them. They're asking, where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? In response to this detestable accusation against him, the Lord says, you know what? I'm going to come personally and I will visit the temple and I'm going to fix all the garbage that you are doing. All of Israel's sin. But in his coming visitation, again, we hear that the Lord refers to himself as the messenger of the covenant, who we now know as Jesus. In Jesus' visitation, he was going to come and show his holiness by doing two things. He's going to come and purify and cleanse evildoers, which clearly means that God does not love injustice or wickedness, right? If he's going to come and clean something, that means he doesn't like dirty something, Okay? He's going to come and do that. But he's also come, coming to judge, we see, which, again, is a different aspect that shows that God loves holiness and rightness. He will punish, but he will also purge. Okay? He's going to condemn, but he's also going to claim. He's going to do both things in his visit to Israel, in his coming, in his second coming, or in his first coming, I should say, but we see that that shows that God does not love sin. He loves his son's holiness. Both soap and fire cleanse, and those are both images that Malachi uses to show that God hates sin. God clearly did not give praise to evildoers, so Jesus was coming to further vindicate the character of God and to show his hatred for, uh, for sin. Now, uh, the holiness of Jesus is in view here when we see these things. God promises to put on a full display of his holiness in both love and in wrath. In both of those things we see, forgiveness and condemnation. It was sure to be on display in full effect. And the imagery that, the, uh, you have to go back and read it. The imagery that is used is, is hardcore when you read it. He, he, uh, he talks about being like a refiner's fire. What does refining do? You put precious metals in fire and it melts to the point that it purges and burns off impurities. And then in another case, impurities rise to the top and they're, they're scooped off the top. But it goes through the, through the fire. All right? there's, a, there's a holiness that's produced in us when we are confronted with the holiness of God. And then we see the other imagery that's, uh, that's shown to us in Malachi. That when the Lord comes, he is coming. And it's going to be like a blazing furnace. And he's going to burn the entire forest down. And not just the forest, but the roots of the trees. And in that, he's indicating that when judgment comes to sinners who want to remain in rebellion to God, his judgment will be complete once and for all. A punishment is coming. A visitation is coming. A purging is coming. A visitation is coming. And that will show and vindicate the holiness of our God and of the Son, Jesus Christ. We also see that God loves supporting his Son's gospel. That's how much God loves his son, that he loves the supporting of his gospel. One of the other sins that Israel was guilty of was robbing God of tithes and offerings. Tithes were a percentage of Israel's produce, a percentage of their livestock that God blessed them with when the land was doing well because they were in covenant faithfulness to him. That's what was happening. God gave them the land. And then he gave them the fruit of the land. And they were required to give a portion back to God, somewhere around 25% with all the tithes that they were required to participate in. And we went over all that. We won't go over that in detail. But as Israel gave the tithes, which the scripture says belonged to God, because the land belonged to God, they gave of these tithes, and they were to give them to the priests who were supposed to be acting like Jesus' pictures. 
they give them to the priest, and then the priest would tithe and give it to the great high priest. And in doing so, they were supporting the temple work. The temple work where God dwelled, the temple work that showed God is separated from mankind because of sin, because of those veils and courts and different ways in which you could gradually get closer to God by various sacrifices. But it showed God's holiness, God's sin, but the priesthood pointed to Christ, the sacrifice pointed to Christ, everything was pointing to Christ. And so what we see is that God loves the supporting of the gospel, because that's what that was, a gospel picture. When we transfer over to the New Testament, all right, because we don't participate in temple worship anymore, because that's the old covenant, in the new covenant, we see that God still loves the support of the gospel and making sure that it gets proclaimed. And so what does God require of us? He requires that we give and take care of those who do gospel work so that they can continue to do that. And so as a church, we give not to build buildings, we give to further the name of Christ, to further the gospel story. And so scripture encourages us to take care of those who take care of us spiritually by preaching the word. As you give to take care of the physical needs of your elders and pastors, the pastors then take care of your spiritual needs and equip you to go out and do the work of Jesus Christ, which is a ministry of reconciliation. And so you should be glad that you get to participate in that. You are, you are taking care of someone, and we have two pastors here on full-time staff, but you are taking care of them so that they can take care of you. Are you with me? And that's what we see in the Old Testament. The Israelites taking care of the priests who are then to minister to them the word of God and be mediators. So they're supporting gospel work and under that covenant, so too we support gospel work under the new covenant. We see also that God loves his sense prophets, and this was one of the huge uh, for me, this is one of a, the huge uh, highlights in Malachi. God loves his son's prophets. In the Old Testament, God continually sent prophets to, to, uh, to the world and to Israel, to both. And those prophets confronted them in their sin, and those prophets called them to repent of their sin and to turn to God in order to be saved. Noah preached to the world. Jonah cried out to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Elijah cried out against the evils of King Ahab in the northern kingdom of Israel. At God's command, Malachi is crying out against Judah's evils, the southern kingdom of Israel. He's calling them to repent of their sin and to live in faithfulness to God. So in Scripture, God's prophets, they spoke God's message. And these prophets often spoke prophecies that foretold of the coming of Christ. The future wasn't being predicted. You have to understand what a prophecy is. It's not them predicting the future. A prophecy is God saying, this is what I'm going to do. Do you see the difference? Just like if you tell your kids, hey, we're going to go to Disneyland. They go to Disneyland. How did you know that, Dad? You didn't predict the future. It was your plan and agenda, right? Like, man, my dad's smart, right? That's just what he was intending to do, okay? If God willed that you go, right? But you get what I'm saying. That's what prophecies are. We look at, we look at them as predictions of the future, but in God's mind, in God's will, there are promises of what he is going to do. And his power and wisdom ensure that they will not be stopped. But God's prophets often foretold of the coming sufferings of Christ and his resurrection and the mediatorial work that he would do. And so God loves the prophets, and they all point to Christ. They all point to Christ, okay? First Peter tells us that the prophets who prophesied, okay, we're in the New Testament now, the prophets who prophesied about the salvation that we have, they were searching and inquiring to know more about the suffering that Christ would accomplish to save us and the following glory that he would receive. They were, they were looking in to try to understand these events in a greater detail. That's the Old Testament prophets pointing to Christ, declaring salvation in Jesus. Peter goes on to say this. He goes, they weren't serving themselves. They were serving us. That's who they were preaching to, not just Israel, but to us. What an amazing truth. Old Testament prophets, Old Covenant prophets prophesied about Jesus. They were serving us, pointing ahead to the Christ. Malachi, he's doing the same. He speaks of Christ who was to come, who was called the messenger of the covenant. And then Malachi says that there's a messenger or another prophet coming before Jesus who will prepare the way for Jesus. That's John the Baptist. We know who these people are. But Prior to knowing that John the Baptist was going to be the one who would prepare the way for Jesus, John calls this messenger to come 
Elijah. So the Jews aren't waiting for a guy named John the Baptist. They're waiting for Elijah. But yet we see that John was Elijah who was to come, that he preached in the power like the ministry of Elijah. That as Elijah, through his ministry, helped bring Israel back to God, so John the Baptist would help bring people back to Jesus. God loves his prophets. They preach of Christ. They point to him. But when we learned of the prophets of Christ, and we learned of this coming of Elijah, the coming of Jesus as well on the heels of Elijah, we saw that this coming was going to take place in two stages. There was a first coming and a second coming. And in Malachi, the details aren't very clear. There's told that there's a saving coming, and there's a judgment coming, a purging and a punishment. And what we see is this happens in two stages, okay? That there are two parts of Elijah coming, and there are two parts of the messenger of the covenant coming, Jesus coming. And we looked in detail what that meant, okay? When we look at the New Testament, we see that in Jesus' first coming, he came to the temple and he saved a remnant of Israel. He promised a purging, right? To remove evil from people. And a great many number of Israelites believed. The majority rejected. But a great number of priests and people did believe in Jesus Christ. The gospel started there. And then we see that Christ did bring judgment and that because of the majority and then rejecting Christ as Messiah, the temple got destroyed in 70 AD. In his first coming, he issued both salvation and judgment. And the prophet John the Baptist is that Elijah who prepared a way for Jesus. Now that Christ is gone, he's coming again. And we learned in the book of Revelation, as we move forward to that just for a little bit, and Pastor Steve preached on it even in greater detail if you want to hear that, but we learned that, that there are two prophets that herald the name of Jesus before he comes, that they are preaching the gospel to the world before Christ comes the second time. Those two prophets are symbolic of the church, we learned. And that was there to help us shape our identity. You are Elijah, who preaches Christ before Christ comes again. And we are faced with a coming persecution, as John the Baptist was. As the prophets of old were persecuted and killed and despised by Israel, so we too stand in a prophetic place in the world, not just proclaiming to Israel, but to all nations, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the King. And he's coming again to finalize our salvation and to bring about a restored creation with new bodies so that we will be with the Lord forever. But also he's coming to bring about final damnation. In the first coming, he brought about a salvation and a damnation. In his second coming, he will bring about ultimate and complete salvation and ultimate and complete damnation. And that is your task, brothers and sisters, to have an Elijah-like ministry where you are calling people to come to Jesus Christ. Do you understand who you are? Do you understand that God loves his message of saving grace and God even loves his message of judgment because both of those things herald his awesome, righteous character. And you have a chance to proclaim both of those. And so we ought to take our ministry as a church seriously. You are the modern-day prophet of God in this world. Do not forsake your responsibilities. We see, lastly, that God, and there was probably 30 other things we learned. God loves his son's dominion, his son's reign. That's the grand end of Malachi. As Malachi closes out his writing, the Lord urges Judah to look back. He says, I want you to adhere to the law of Moses. Remember it. Remember your covenant, Israel. Look back. And then don't forget that Elijah is coming before the great day of the Lord, an awesome and fearful day. We know that God was, in essence, pointing them to submit to Scripture. The law and the prophets is how you said the Old Testament back then. Moses and the prophets. So when, when Malachi says Moses and Elijah in such close proximity, he's talking about the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures. Because Elijah was the premier prophet of Israel, the greatest in their mind, and therefore they equated him with the writings of the prophets. So to say Moses and Elijah was a shorthand way or a a synonymous way of saying the Old Testament. God's calling them to live in faithfulness. 
Again, based on Malachi's writings, we know that God is coming to visit this temple. And God identifies himself as a messenger of the covenant. So God is the one who gives the covenant. He's the one who issues it. He's the messenger. Okay? Even though he gave it through Moses, he is the ultimate messenger. Let me say it this way. God, the messenger of the covenant, is exercising his dominion, his reign over them, in that he requires submission to them as the giver of the law. Does that make sense? God is exercising his dominion over them by saying, you need to listen to my word. You listen to my scriptures. He completely uh, called them to go back to the law and prophets. And Jesus is the one who fulfilled it all. All that word that I'm telling you to listen to, watch how I do it all. I'm coming to do what Israel failed to do, what you priests failed to do what you failed to uphold in my sacrifices and festivals and feasts. All that you have failed Israel, I will be the one true Israelite. And so he's calling them to adhere to that. And in doing so, he shows them just how how short they fall of God's glory. And when Jesus did that, again, he closed out the old covenant law. Even though there are still prophecies remaining to be fulfilled from it, he closed out the the covenant, the the Sinaitic covenant, And in the New Testament, we see that there's a new law given. And Pastor Steve started to touch on this as he started preaching through Matthew chapter 5. You remember where Moses received the law? On Mount Sinai. And he passed it on to the Israelites. And in Matthew 5, Jesus is said to have gone up into a mount. And is there he begins to teach and dispense the law of God. Jesus is the greater Moses. And he is speaking as though he is divine God because he is. And so scripture is showing a retelling of this story of Israel's time in the wilderness as they receive the law and is showing us that this new covenant is now coming upon us and Jesus is the divine lawgiver. And how is that divine law expressed to us? In the New Testament writings, Jesus then left and promised that his apostles would speak for him and inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is called the Spirit of Christ, the third person of the Trinity, God then, his son, then issues his word to us. And as we submit to the word, we are recognizing that his dominion is over us. What are we called to confess in order to be saved? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. That is repentance, but it is a confession that he has dominion and reign over me. And if I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, which necessitates death, then I will be saved. And that's what the Lord is doing, brothers and sisters. He is calling the entire world to come under his dominion. Because what does creation start with? God's dominion over everything. And mankind was told, you have dominion over this world under my authority. I'm telling you that. So who's the ultimate authority? God is. And in scripture, we are told in the New Testament many times to listen to the Son of God. Why? Because he is God. He is God. The writer of Hebrews says that God spoke in many different times and in many different ways by prophets and whatnot. But in these last days, he has spoken to us uh, by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. God didn't say to any of the angels, sit at my right hand, which is the ultimate place of power. Who did he say it to? He said it to his son. And the Lord will make all his enemies his footstool, a place to rest his feet, to show a place to stand over as I have conquered you. Malachi is showing us that when the Lord comes again, he is having ultimate dominion and reign on this planet once and for all. God loves the dominion of his son. We've already seen the inauguration of his kingdom, the starting of it when Christ came the first time. When he comes the second time, it is the consummation of it. It is done. His rule and reign will be on this earth forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Therefore, we are to encourage each other with the words and the message that Christ is coming again. The victory in this world belongs to the divine warrior king and messenger and priest and sacrifice that we know as Jesus Christ. And we are those kingdom citizens in union with him and with each other. So we ought to let these truths in Malachi shape our mind and behavior. And if you are not a Christian, then I urge you today, as a minister of reconciliation, as one who symbolically is a priest or perhaps in a spiritual sense a priest, like the Old Testament priest, we urge you to turn from sin. 
They failed. We do not want to fail. If you aren't a Christian, turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus in faith. Believe that he died and rose again for your sin. He will make you a kingdom citizen. That ultimately means then that you are to live in covenant with Christ in obedience to him. You don't have to do that. It is your choice if you want to remain in rebellion. Just know that a judgment is coming. We can't force you. We can only plead with you to be right with God. And the way that you are made right is not by just coming to God and standing before him on your own. It is standing before God with Christ as your perfect righteousness and your perfect sacrifice and perfect resurrection. That's ultimately God's warning in Malachi. Judgment is coming, but rescue can be found. That is God's word. For those of you that have been with us through Malachi, this chapter of preaching is about to close. But don't forget it. Take a nice survey of it. If need be, go back and listen to previous sermons. But whatever you do, don't forget the message of Malachi because it it leads us to the end of creation as we know it now. It leads us to the finality of Christ being ultimate victor. It's relevant for now. It's left an impression on me that I'll not soon forget. I want it to be a milestone marker in my life because I've seen Christ more clearly in the word and I pray that you have too. I pray that you see him exalted high and lifted up by the prophet Malachi. See the Lord Jesus in all his splendor in the word and may our hearts grow deep in love for him and in greater obedience to our sovereign king. Let us pray.